church to organise meetings every day of the week. Uh, there are churches out there, you know, you can go to the meetings in the morning and the evening, uh, Monday uh, uh, through to uh, Sunday. And uh, we could hire out this building, for instance, uh, every day and make sure that every making minute there's an opportunity for you to come together uh, with the church and we can have a church event. Poor Tim might be a bit exhausted playing the guitar, but nonetheless, uh, we could do these things. And some people really love immersing themselves in church, immersing themselves totally in church life. Um, one of the things is, and if you've ever been to a Christian camp, uh, it's very true, um, obvious sins become a little bit harder. Um, if you're at church all the time, there's less opportunity for you to do dastardly things outside of meetings. Um, and there's a safety and comfort in sitting alongside people that believe Jesus is Lord. When you're outside, people don't believe the same things that you do. But in here, hopefully, we're alongside friends who have very similar to, uh, uh, beliefs. And it can be feel a safe space. And you find people that uh, spend a lot of time in church meetings. But when we set up uh, Ian Bubish in 2005, uh, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to make sure that people have healthy home lives, so that we weren't dragging them out every evening, so that the spouses of the saved person won't give me a call up saying, I never see my husband or wife, why do you have church on all the time, so that people can spend time with their families. Um, and we also hoped that instead of just having church meetings, that you would be good at loving your neighbour. That instead of all your time um, sort of singing hill songs or whatever, you would reach out to help people in your neighbourhood. Over the last uh, week or two, I have been thrilled to write three references. Um, I've written three references from this fellowship to help with this uh, crawly-wide initiative called uh, Love Your Neighbour. And it's been uh, uh, run by another church. God forbid that we help someone else. Uh, but we're all in the same kingdom, aren't we? And we, uh, I was just thrilled that these guys had done this application. I'm like, you know what? Uh, Ian Bubush is not holding enough meetings. I can go and use my time productively for someone else. And so they've applied for uh, uh, helping uh, uh, sort of deliver and distribute food to the needy in Crawley and have sort of uh, um, come alongside the lonely and the struggling and whatever else. And can I say, I would like to write any more references. If you feel that that uh, is something that you could do, if you feel that you know what, you want more church services, well how about you don't have a church service, how about you go and help one of the awesome charities that are part of this town. Uh, I'm uh, a trustee on the Lighthouse Project. Uh, uh, my wife is uh, uh, one of their staff. Go and volunteer uh, uh, to sort of reach out to the schools with the good news of Jesus. There's the Easter team um, and there's uh, lots of other uh, uh, people out there that, that want to help calling. So um, we'd love you to be part of the uh, Alpha Group and the prayer meeting and the Sunday uh, morning meeting we have. But there are other days of the week and you can go and help people on those. So let me encourage you to go and do what those people are. And I would love all my time to be spent writing references saying this person uh, is a good guy. 
Um, and I really hope this is a tip of the iceberg as well, that uh, we don't need a formal organisation to be kind to someone, that we don't need uh, a formal risk assessment and a strategy and a strap line and a Twitter hashtag to be kind and generous. So if you are being kind and generous, don't bother signing up with the other charities. Go and do what God has called you to do. So, us, um, we've been reading through the Apostle Paul's letters. He's written quite a few of them, you may have noticed. We have a 90 day span which we're sort of crashing through them. And um, I just wanted to get us our hands dirty again this Sunday morning um, to get sort of simple truth, hopefully nothing that you would leave confused about and something substantial, you know, that you can rest your life on, that you can think about during the week and go, oh, I'm glad that that point has been reiterated. Paul was an intellectual heavyweight. Uh, he, if he lied today, he would have sort of graduation gowns, uh, filling up all his wardrobe. He'd have letters after his name that are longer than his actual name. He would be uh, celebrated by all the major educational uh, institutions. And God used this clever board to unpack what's going on in the gospel. To uh, tease out the implications. What does it mean for a Christian uh, that Jesus died on the cross? And then, and this is really controversial, he takes those truths and says, yes, this applies to all of you. If you're going through, um, if you've been through 1 Corinthians, you'll know there are some people that behaved outrageously. And, and Paul tells us, because Jesus died on the cross, this should not be happening. And the very practical implications of uh, uh, this uh, wonderful message. Um, if you've been following my master plan, um, you will have read what we're going to read today on the 6th of October. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. Abnormally born. 
For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached. And this is what you believed. For me as a dad, uh, one, uh, a bigger deal for me than not being allowed to sing on a Sunday is that we can't have children's ministry. I think it's really sad that we come together um, and but because of restrictions on space and hygiene, the most vulnerable people in this church are not being ministered to in the most fun way possible. You know, uh, our kids are really vital and it is a real shame that we can't help them. However, I've got after Sunday school in my family. So um, I've tried to make up for the deficiencies here at home. They haven't always welcomed this, to be fair, uh, because uh, I get quite intense sometimes when we talk about these things and make sure they believe the right things. Um, and so we try and do daily devotionals at home. And so we sort of get around in uh, the boys' bedroom and we try and pray uh, and I try and make some, uh, uh, so, so they don't just trot out the same prayers, uh, sort of try and cover some theological aspects um, and making sure that it's not just about ourselves. Um, and we try and do a Bible reading as well, you know, we try and sort of try and minister to my own kids uh, in the absence of something really fun and engaging. Um, if you have ever taught children, and let me recommend that as an opportunity, uh, if you've ever uh, taught kids, you will know they have a fearlessness to ask questions. They don't think any question is too stupid or too weird, um, and they will just persevere and press on through what is going on um, at the top of their minds. Um, I still have this really favourite uh, memory of my oldest son. We were coming together, we were reading Bible, and uh, my oldest son asked, uh, what language did God speak when he created light? Because obviously there's no Hebrew language, there's no English. I'm like, I don't know. And I still don't know, and I've not actually met anyone that's answered that question. What language did God speak when he created the world? some sort of divine language? Is there divine grammar and verbs? I don't know, all sorts of questions come out from uh, my boy's uh, question. And so I admit I struggle to teach my own kids sometimes uh, 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 what I uh, believe. And if I struggle, I wonder how you guys are doing. If an eight-year-old, if my eight-year-old came up to you and said, so what do you believe? I wonder how you do. Could you answer an eight-year-old in a way that he would understand what you believe? Over the years, church leaders have kind of struggled with this. They've kind of said, we want to help our people sort of articulate their beliefs in a simple way, in a way that kind of covers the bases, in a way that kind of leads out the stuff that's of secondary importance and focuses on the stuff that is of first importance. And one solution has been to 
come up with creeds. And there is a blistering amount of creeds that have been published by uh, churches and fellowships and denominations over uh, the years. And they kind of try and summarise the main critical central points. If you go on our website, we have a creed on there and it's, it's over 500 words. I wonder how many of you would be good at memorising a, a 500 word uh, creed just to tell um, someone what you uh, believe. And as heresies pop up, more and more words are added because people take things in different directions. But in here in 1 Corinthians 15, I think we have one of the very earliest summaries, one of the very earliest creeds, one of the very, very earliest moments where what we believe has kind of been distilled into concentrated paragraphs. And uh, Paul says it's of first importance. So I think it's really good that we know what is going on in 1 Corinthians 15. That it is something that we treasure and understand and that we can uh, uh, tell others about. And he just draws in all the different things that we find in the Gospels and his letters and distills it down to this concentrated message. I wonder if you noticed um, that Paul at the start has this laser-like focus on historical evidence. Paul says Jesus died, he was buried, and then he returned to life sort of 72 hours-ish later. Put your hand up if you understand that. If you understand that Paul says Jesus died, he was buried and rose again. Anyone understand that? It's quite simple. You don't need a degree to understand that. You don't even need A-levels or GCSEs. I'm guessing my eight-year-old uh, uh, has grasped that, hopefully already. There's no, nothing vague, nothing highfalutin and uh, um, sort of difficult to understand. There's no spiritual mumbo-jumbo there, is there? If you said that to somebody, they go, well, I might, they might disagree or agree, but they would understand what you're saying. I believe Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again three days later. I, they, even the people with the uh, uh, smallest grasp of the English language should be able to uh, take that in. Our faith rests on that moment in history. Our belief system, our theology, it rests on that moment on the death and resurrection of Jesus. If an eight-year-old asks you about your faith, so, what do you believe? And you start waffling on about church, if you start waffling on about prayer, if you start waffling on about reading the Bible, if you start going on about being good, you don't know what you're talking about. If an eight-year-old comes to you and you start with anything else than Jesus died and rose again, you've missed the boat. You are confused. May we never be so preoccupied with other aspects of our faith, because our faith is rich and wide and encompasses all sorts of beautiful elements, but boiled down, distilled, concentrated, it is about that moment. May we never get so preoccupied with something else that we forget that Jesus
died for our sins. That we are guilty before God and that Jesus made a way where there was none. That he rose again victorious and that is the core of our life now and our life to come. That is the middle of it. A few years ago, my uh, brother got to do something I would love to try. Uh, no one's ever asked me this, uh, but I would really uh, fancy the opportunity. He got to be the uh, he got to be part of a lineup at Horsham Police Station. I'm not fussy where I get to be called up, like another police station is like, but Horsham Police Station, he was called up and he joined a line of apparently about 15 other guys. They were of a similar uh, description and build. And a casualty of a crime uh, came in and they had to uh, identify the person most like the person that did the crime. And uh, was, uh, I love this. Out of the 15 guys, who do you reckon this guy uh, picked out in the lineup? Yeah, my brother got singled out as a person most like a criminal. And that just confirms a lot of my biases and prejudices uh, about my brother. Most crook-like person there is. Um, and uh, in a court of law, in that place where evidence is brought in and when justice is exercised, you know, not perfectly, uh, uh, but as near as they can, um, a credible eyewitness is enormous significance. If someone says, I've seen that person do that thing, that's kind of, you've got them banged to rights. You can dismiss and dismantle all sorts of clever lies when someone goes, no, I saw that person do it. Oh, yes, I wasn't there, I've got train tickets to prove, no, I saw you. There is something powerful about a eyewitness, and that power has been recognised by humanity for thousands of years. And this truth was not lost on the Apostle Paul. For after detailing this event of <coughs> Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, Paul goes to great lengths, doesn't he? about detailing the eyewitnesses. It wasn't just a few flaky religious guys saw Jesus. It wasn't just a few of his followers that saw him. Name after name Paul's dropped. And then he says over 500 people saw him. And suddenly we go, oh, perhaps it's not a religious delusion. Perhaps it's not a... Uh, um, a figment of the imagination. Perhaps it happened. Suddenly we should feel um, a weight off our shoulders as we've got hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. Many of them were alive today when, uh, when uh, were alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, said, I've seen him. Oh, I don't believe in all that Jesus rubbish. But Jesus, I've seen him. I don't you you can say you don't believe it, but I saw him physically. I had a fish supper with him, I had a barbecue on the beach with him. There is something wonderful and real and reassuring when Paul says, We've got eyewitnesses, chill out, Christians, you're believing the truth. And when people try and dismiss the significance of Jesus, 
Isn't that something reassuring, something robust, something hardy? We've got high witnesses, mate. You don't, I don't care what uh, you say, oh, it's an hallucination. I've got high witnesses, 500 of the beggars. Some of them are alive when Paul wrote this. So back off. If you can't read that in the video, it says, uh, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We sort of read that earlier. So after saying what the gospel is, this uh, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, and of having this corroborating evidence of hundreds of eyewitnesses going, he was over there, mate. Um, Paul talks about his own experience. Paul remembers that Damascus Road meeting with Jesus, and uh, Paul obviously invests huge importance today because, you know, I met Jesus too. You know, all the other ones, they probably, they were with him at some point, but I'd never met him, and now I have. And it turned him from an enemy of the people of the way to one of the main proponents of the people of the way. He joined them. He met Jesus, and it was such a convincing experience that it turned his life around, and he became one of the people that he thought were heretics and deceivers. It's a wonderful conversion story. And he makes really clear that he didn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve this role as an apostle, this significant gift of helping the church. And he says, I didn't deserve it, but why did he get it? If he didn't deserve it, how did he get it? And it is a one of the most beautiful words in the English language, because of grace. If you are not touched by the word of grace, I hope to ram this word home. If I didn't know so many graces around here, all my children would be called grace, even the boys, because it's such a beautiful word. If Jesus' death and resurrection is the key moment in our faith, grace is the key concept. Anyone who trusts in Jesus for life now and forevermore, we are not saved by religious activity. You're not. You're not saved by praying or reading the Bible, coming to church. You're not saved by looking Christian, having a little fish on your car or a little cross round your neck or whatever other instrument you think makes you Christian. All of that is superfluous. You're not saved by those things. You are not saved by your good deeds. God bless the people that look out for their neighbour, that help old people off the street, that deliver food parcels and ring up the lonely. God bless the people that uh, help others in trouble and in need, but that is not a root of salvation. We are not God's children because he knew we'd be good. Because that is not grace. We are God's children because of God's grace, because of his free and undeserved affection lavished on us. We don't deserve it. We never have and never will do. None of us will ever warrant God's attention saying, that person's just so good, I'm just going to save them because you know what, they just totally deserve it. 
At no point in our lives is that true. We are saved by his grace and grace alone. Now I have many heavy tunes of theology on my bookshelf, a lot of which I admit I have not read. Uh, and they kind of weigh down my shelves and, uh, um, and sort of dip into them and, and enjoy some of the uh, 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 profound thinking there. But the books that I really like on my shelves are writings that come from personal experiences. Not just clever people who are Christians, but people that kind of lived it out, that experienced what they are uh, penning to paper. Adventures of Salvation, that's what I really enjoy. In 1963, uh, an American called Brennan Manning uh, was ordained as a Franciscan monk. Um, he then moved to France, uh, joined, um, I really like this, this little group apparently called the Little Brothers of Jesus. And you're like, oh, that sounds like a nice group to be of. Um, and so he joined them, and basically he was working among the poor. So he had nothing, and he would move water uh, by putting it on the back of a donkey, and he washed dishes. And that was his life. Imagine if that was the lives of the... Uh, um, the pastors and the religiously significant people here. Not the ones that manage multi-billion pound uh, sort of media empires or anything else. But people that devoted themselves to the point of poverty to help other people who are struggling. So I really liked the obvious uh, devotion in his heart. Um, he then went apparently to live for six months in a cave in the Zaragoza Desert, which is apparently uh, in Spain. And uh, I really like that sort of contemplation, you know, uh, people that don't just talk about prayer, but have massive moments of retreat where nothing else matters. Where it's not about telling other people to do it, but it is that of personal work. And so he disappeared off into the desert for six months, um, in this sort of retreat in a cave. I'm not sure what sort of hot water and other supplies he has, so I'm thinking he's kind of living a quite an austere life. And uh, um, I really like that. So he's got this backstory. Um, and then uh, he returned back to the States, um, promptly became an alcoholic, probably struggling uh, with all the forces on him. Um, and then out of all of this, he started writing and processing and leaving behind the alcoholism. And his writings are really important. His writings are very profound. His writings are easy to understand and they're very exciting. And you read them and go, oh, that's the Jesus I want to know. So I want to read uh, possibly his most famous work. So this is called the Raga Muffin Gospel. And I just want to read a couple of paragraphs that this guy who experiences the high and low of uh, spirituality, um, what he says about grace. He says this, Grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is a gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. While there is much we may have earned, our degree and our salary, our home and garden, a miller light and a good night's sleep, all this is possible 
only because we have been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see, hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas and a heart to beat with love, we have been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. It is not reward for our faithfulness, not a reward for our generous disposition or our heroic life of prayer. Even our fidelity, our faithfulness is a gift. If we turn to God, said St. Augustine, that itself is a gift of God. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am nothing, uh, uh, is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. I wonder if that's filtering through. I wonder if you are starting to realise the significance of grace, the importance it should have to you, of the prominence it should be in your spiritual lives, in your devotions, in your everyday existence. Everything is sheer gift. And he goes on. In fact, I'd quite like to read the whole book, but um, we haven't got time for that. And grace calls out, you are not just a disillusioned old man who may die soon, a middle-aged woman stuck in a job and desperately wanting to get out, a young person feeling the fire in your belly begin to grow cold. You may be insecure, inadequate, mistaken or pot-bellied. Death, panic, Depression and disillusionment may be near you, but you are not just that. You are accepted. Never confuse your perception of yourself with the mystery that you are really are accepted. It's a great line. Never confuse your perception of yourself with the mystery that you are really accepted. Paul writes, the Lord said, my grace is enough for you. My power is at best in its weakness. So I shall be very happy to make my weaknesses my special boast, so that the power of Christ may stay over me. Whatever our failings may be, we need not lower our eyes in the presence of Jesus. Unlike Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre Dame, we need not hide all that is ugly and repulsive in us. Jesus comes, not for the super-spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak-kneed, who know they don't have it all together, and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. As we glance up, we are astonished to find the eyes of Jesus open with wonder, deep with understanding, and gentle with compassion. Friends, this is a simple sermon. I want you to know the facts of your salvation. I want you to trust in Jesus' victory. And I want you to enjoy God's grace. Because that's what it's all about. Please bow your heads.
Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us. We thank you that his death on the cross paid a cost that we couldn't afford. Lord God, I thank you that you have saved us by your lavish, unearned, unwarranted, never-ending grace. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us in this building and those online watching this sermon, that you would help us revel in the truth of this salvation and in the grace that underpins it. Heavenly Father, I pray that grace would be a treasured word in our lives and a way of life for each and every one of us. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.